This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 2nd of July, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, the rest of the world has moved on and Australia is having the lockdowns it didn't need to have. And the vaccination and quarantine problems continue for Scott Morrison, and it seems like they're going to be here for some time to come. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Chief Procurement Officer for Greg Hunt, Minister for Health. Thanks to all of our supporters who have subscribed, listened in, purchased one of our books, which incidentally is selling very, very well. So thank you very much for that. And just to let everyone know that we've produced another piece of political merchandising. This time around, it's the Gough Whitlam paraphernalia. You can buy a t-shirt, a coffee mug, a notepad. There's even a doona cover if you'd like to hide from the coronavirus. And it's just another way to support New Politics and it's available on our website, newpolitics.com.au. Now, I've always felt that a cup of coffee tastes a little bit better with a picture of Gough Whitlam on the side of it. If not Gough Whitlam, then Julia Gillard, but yes, Gough, stops the cough. That's what I say. It started off with Sydney and now most capital cities around Australia have some form of lockdown. And it followed on from the outbreak of the Delta strain of coronavirus in Sydney, where one case in hotel quarantine has resulted in over 200 cases across Sydney. And it seems that those cases have also been exported to Adelaide, Melbourne, Perth and Brisbane, causing lockdowns in all mainland capital cities except for Melbourne and Adelaide. These lockdowns have arisen from issues in hotel quarantine, but politics is at the heart of this. Scott Morrison refuses to address these ongoing issues in hotel quarantine, and after attacking every other Premier for the lockdowns in their respective states, Gladys Berejiklian wanted to save face and refused to lock down Sydney until it was far too late. Sydney now has a two-week lockdown in place, and it's likely to be much longer than that, but the New South Wales government should have locked down as soon as the case numbers started rising instead of procrastinating for an entire week and waiting. Should Sydney have locked down earlier or was it the right response, David? It should have locked down the weekend before. You can see some kind of logic in keeping open for the other week so that you lock down during school holidays rather than lose the last week of school. I know that that's part of their strategy. It's a wrong strategy. Schools are super spreaders. They are terrific transmitters. They are any alliteration you can find. It's a government that likes to save money when it's not being shoveled to their donors. So that extra week, I think, was so that they could lock down during school holidays a traditionally quieter time. How much longer that will make lockdown, we don't know yet. If numbers start to go down, we might be in a two-week lockdown. As one whose other life is deeply affected by lockdowns, I am hoping for a two-week lockdown but we've got to be realistic too. Their lack of decision, their ego. Gladys, I don't think, wants to be seen to be anything like Dan Andrews and will do the exact opposite to Victoria and hope that it works. Now, let's be fair, she's been lucky up to now, but the luck seems to have run out and we all pay for that. 
Well, the main thing that we want our political leaders to do is put the interests of the public first, and that didn't happen last week. In my opinion, it's been politics at its worst. The New South Wales government for such a long period of time has been hailed as the gold standard in COVID management and contract tracing, but the first sign of danger, the system was found lacking and it was found wanting. It was, wasn't so much the gold standard, it was more like the Puce standard or something completely different. <laughs> The Gladys boosters that are around, and I don't understand the Gladys boosters. She lied to ICAC. She shredded legal documents, grant decisions. So she broke the law. So she's illegitimate. And I really hate saying that about the New South Wales Premier, but that's the case. The thing about the Gladys boosters is they always say, oh, the gold standard was only in reference to contact tracing. There is absolutely no question that the contract tracers work very, very hard and they're doing the absolute best they can, but they're doing an impossible job. It's gold standard, probably, yes, in terms of how hard they're working. I don't know that any other states works harder. They're all working very hard. In terms of how the government has managed the virus, it's been really bad. It's been awful. And there's also that point that you made before about the New South Wales government doing the opposite of what the Labor governments were doing in other states as well. And a prime example of this is the Senator Holly Hughes. She was on the ABC just the day before the lockdown saying that the Liberal Party doesn't do lockdowns. Let's have a listen to that. Wales, Holly Hughes, you're a senator for that state. Do you think that it's time for a lockdown in Sydney? No, not at all. In New South Wales, we just don't do it that way. We like to keep our economy open. Um, if you think about it, there, there's now 36 cases linked to the entire cluster. Uh, there was 11 cases today, 10 of which are already in isolation and known to be close contacts of those who'd already tested positive. Now, there was, unfortunately, 19 people die in the UK yesterday of COVID. We had 16,000 positive tests in the UK yesterday. And, you know, they're back open and things are happening. We need to learn to live with the virus. There has never been an elimination strategy. I think some of the states, and, and certainly Matt's state of WA, has advocated for more of an elimination-style uh, strategy. But if we go down that path, we're going to end up closed off to the world and each other for a really long time. But no, not a lockdown. I think Gladys is acting with logic, not panic, and keeping the state's economy moving uh, and not unnecessarily punishing people. So once again, politics is at the heart of this issue, as it usually is. But also looking at the Services New South Wales check-in app, it is going to be mandatory for all businesses to use the system from July the 12th. I actually thought that it was mandatory and I was, was a little bit surprised when Berejiklian mentioned that contact tracers had been up all night tracking the contacts of each case and how hard it is to track people's movements over the preceding two weeks. But I assume that this was the purpose of the services New South Wales checking app. And, and of course, it's not going to pick up everyone's movements, and especially if they're moving socially rather than going into a business location or commercial environment. And, you know, I'll also accept that even if it was mandatory, you'd still have to do some manual contact tracing. But if the services New South Wales checking app, it wasn't mandatory for all of this time, and most of the contact tracing is being done through manual face-to-face -face interviews and tracking, what's the point of the app in the first place? It almost seems like it's as ineffective as the federal government's COVID safe app was. They don't do technology well. They just don't. The census, the NBN, 
contract tracing apps. There's that group of people who say this is an infringement on my privacy. I'm allowed to go where I like. Well, it's okay. They're going to lose the data anyway. This is not a slam at the New South Wales Public Service. This is a criticism of our elected officials who just aren't up to the job, who don't administer it properly and who don't know how to administer it properly. One of the things uh, Kerry Chant said was that Parliament House is one of the more challenging locations to lock down. And on one level, you think, well, that can't be right. It's just a, really just an office block, you know, with people coming and going like any other office block in Sydney. I'm sure somewhere like to pick a company at random, AMP, would be the same. People coming and going, boardrooms, and they don't seem to have problems. But then I thought about it for a bit more. And what she wasn't saying was that you have to deal with all these people like John Barillaro, people like Fred Nile, people who have come out against the vaccine, people who've come out essentially saying that the virus isn't real and that they have to deal with those as well as the vast majority, thankfully, of our elected representatives and, and the public service who are quite happy to comply with public health orders. We have an elected government in New South Wales who just aren't up to the job. And we've been criticised for criticising the New South Wales government during this time. And some people have been suggesting, well, you should just let the government get on with the difficult task of doing what they have to do. And any criticism deflects from them being able to do their work. And, you know, I'd like to think that we are quite influential, but the New South Wales government isn't going to take notice of what we say. I know that there are several Liberal Party staffers that do listen to our podcast and a big hello to them. But... Governments do need to be held to account. And when they're not doing the right thing, and if they're not doing their job correctly, Mm. well, that needs to be called out and questions do need to be asked. The government delayed their decision to lock down for almost a week. And what could have been a short, sharp lockdown, as has occurred in Perth and in Brisbane, is likely to be a more protracted lockdown in Sydney. The government's argument a week ago was that a short three-day lockdown isn't going to achieve very much. So it's a strange argument. Let's not do a short lockdown that's not going to work a week ago. And if that was the case, well, they should have implemented the longer lockdown at that time. So it's just that we're not getting the full picture here. And the, the other consideration is that now that Sydney is in a lockdown, every single day we hear Berejiklian and her health minister, Brad Hazard, berating the public for not taking the lockdown seriously, moving around too much and not staying at home. Well, they were the ones that were not taking lockdown seriously. And this is all the fault of the New South Wales government. I think a little bit of humility wouldn't be astray here. A lot of the directions were unclear and still are. We don't know what a stay-at-home order means. It means stay-at-home, but you know, are you allowed to go out and buy supplies? Yes, you are. But Bunnings and JB Hi-Fi and Harvey Norman and Kmart and all are still open. Presumably that means you're allowed to go and buy a flat screen TV or or what have you. Well, these are very essential services. <laughs> I suppose they are. It becomes really problematic. I'm not saying that Bunnings and all of those shouldn't be open necessarily, but you know, every day there's another Bunnings on the list. Every day there's another shopping centre on the list of hotspots close us down, pay everyone who needs it, survival money, keep us down for as short as we need or as long as we need, but hopefully that's a shorter time, and let's beat this thing. If you don't criticise the avoidable mistakes, and there are mistakes that were made in retrospect, 
there are some mistakes that aren't that important. They seem important at the time, but turns out they weren't. There are others that seem minor at the time and turned out to be quite significant. We should support good effort, definitely. And to be fair, we haven't seen a lot of good effort from the New South Wales Liberal National Government. And the other big factor has been COVID complacency, which effectively has been promoted indirectly by all governments around Australia. Now, without a question, Australia during 2020 did a fantastic job at keeping case numbers down and suppressing the virus. That was an absolutely brilliant effort. Definitely. Australia had no active cases all across the country for several months towards the end of last year. But it's almost like governments weren't taking seriously what was happening overseas. And and that's just not the government. It was also the population as well. It's almost as though, well, that's something that's happening somewhere else overseas. It couldn't possibly happen here because we've been so good at managing coronavirus. There have also been hotel quarantine issues which got out of hand, and that's something that we'll look at later on. But it seems that the biggest issue has been COVID complacency. Barricades were removed, QR checking codes weren't so prominently displayed, hand sanitizers not as obvious, the correct amount of vaccinations weren't ordered. Just expecting that the coronavirus was mysteriously going to disappear or had gone away. And I think this level of complacency has been the cause of the problems that we've got right now. I, th- I think it was. Um, people say have said to us, you're not epidemiologists, but to compare numbers to overseas you don't need to be an epidemiologist a good knowledge and even a basic knowledge of statistics will let us know that we weren't managing it quite as well testing numbers as a percentage of the population uh, or compared by our electorate just the way that the virus exploded in places like Italy and the UK and the US. Now, we have a smaller population density, so that would slow things down. It was only in the Northern Beaches outbreak and the current outbreak that we were getting numbers which made consistent sense. Now, that's terrible and it's awful. And for everyone who's caught it, let's hope that it's minor and you get through it okay. It's not about how the disease operates, and that's what an epidemiologist also does. And with that, I'm happy to just shut up and listen to what experts say. But in terms of how it's spread, there's a lack of statistical knowledge. And you've also got things like the gambler's fallacy. It can't happen to me. The reason that gambling is a thing at all is that people think they are luckier than they are. And the very few people are, of course, which is why gambling is a thing. It's the same with coronavirus. Oh, I can walk around and it won't affect me. We've also got a 30% chance that it's asymptomatic and that you're walking around with it and don't know it. I think it was Gladys Berejiklian who said, you have to assume you have the disease. And she was absolutely right in that. It's not much I say she's right in, but she was absolutely right in that, as far as I can tell. Well, even if we were epidemiologists, I'm sure that there'd be room for disagreement. It's probably one of those cases, like economists, if you end up getting 10 epidemiologists in a room together, they'd probably disagree on everything. And (laughs) so there has been quite a few battles going on between different premiers of different states. And last week, Daniel Andrews, the premier of Victoria, he returned to work. So he must be quite bemused that Victoria is not in a lockdown, but there's other states that are. (laughs) could you imagine him coming out of okay so are we in lockdown well someone is (laughs) 
during his recovery, and a few people pointed out how much healthier he looked after a traumatic injury and you know, basically three months of bed rest. He's one of the few people in Australia who would look, who would come out of that type of thing looking better because of how hard he'd worked. He had calls for him to resign every day he was on sick leave, which seemed to me to be rather odd. Surely you'd want the acting Molino, the acting premier to resign or to be sacked. M- Melbourne is very trepidatious of another lockdown. They know how hard it is. And, uh, you know, my friends in Melbourne were um, quite sad about it. They accepted it, of course, because you have to for public health reasons. But it does start to affect how you go, which is, again, why Sydney should have shut down earlier. Four days last weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, probably could have seen us through this, maybe stretching it to Tuesday. But now we've got till the end of, at the time of recording next week and possibly beyond. So yeah, Dan Andrews has been shown to be right, possibly the most right. And the other thing too is that if it hits Sydney or Melbourne, more so than any other capital, it becomes a national issue because of the way that the economy and trade, etc., works. If it hits Brisbane, that's bad. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to say, oh, it's, you know, it's easier for people in Brisbane or Adelaide. It's not. Of course not. But you've got that extra risk of spread, not just throughout the state, but throughout the country. And that's what's happened this time. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next, the vaccination and quarantine problems continue for Scott Morrison. been talking about the Sydney lockdown so far but it's safe to say that all of this could have been avoided as well as the other lockdowns across Australia if more of the population had been vaccinated or the ongoing issues in hotel quarantine had been resolved many many months ago. It's actually been forgotten that Melbourne's lockdown in 2020 which lasted for four months was actually caused by an outbreak in hotel quarantine and there have been 30 outbreaks since that time as well. So that's over a year to get quarantine centres created in key regional areas or outposts of capital cities. Yet the federal government has been slow to act on this issue, only agreeing to a memorandum of understanding with the Victoria government. And that's just an MOU. It's not a commitment for construction or anything like that. And they also rejected a well thought out and prepared proposal from the Queensland government. Four months into the vaccination rollout program, only 6% of Australia's population is vaccinated. That's 89th in the world, and that's far behind most of Europe and the US. Scott Morrison is a big fan of football, and just to compare some of the football action, here's the noise from the England-Germany game just a few days ago at Wembley Stadium.
And here's the noise from an AFL game between West Coast and the Western Bulldogs last Sunday in Perth. This is a football comparison Morrison might be able to understand because it seems like he's not understanding hotel quarantine and vaccination issues. 18 months after the pandemic commenced, England, which had massive problems with coronavirus management and case numbers, was able to have 60,000 spectators at a game of football, whereas over here there's a spectator lockout. Australia had a massive global advantage during 2020 in being able to keep case numbers down and manage the coronavirus well, but it looks like in 2021, the rest of the world has moved on, Australia is at the back of the queue, and Morrison is more intent on picking fights and playing the blame game. It's all he knows what to do. He is a failed student politician, and they learn politics from just debating each other and making sure you win the argument. It's it's almost the George Costanza approach to politics. The joke still rang and they're all out of you. Uh, and Seinfeld fans will know what I'm referring to. Others, go and watch that episode, the comeback it is in season six, I think. It's, it's brilliantly funny. He doesn't seem to comprehend the importance beyond gee, someone should do something about that, which is common amongst a certain breed of liberal politician. Gladys Berejiklian on the homeless is another example. Basically, Anna Palaszczuk caught him out. He said that our National Cabinet had decided that AstraZeneca, which they have an oversupply of now, really, AstraZeneca could be used on the under-50s. The Queensland Chief Health Officer said, well, actually, I'd rather it not be used on younger people. She admitted it was a a low risk, but there's still a risk. Now, if it was the only vaccine, you might be prepared to take the risk. But when there are other vaccines, it's probably within the best interests of a health officer to recommend the better ones. The other thing I've been meaning to say in the last few podcasts and haven't yet is how incredible it is that we have vaccines at all. Because till this point, we've never had an effective vaccine against any coronavirus. And that includes things like SARS and MERS, which devastated Singapore 20 years ago. So for there to be four to six, depending on your view on the Chinese and Russian ones, vaccines is really an incredible achievement and says a lot to us as our roles as human beings and scientists, etc., etc. The response to them all says a lot to us as our roles in human beings as idiots and egomaniacs. So there's that. I think Scott Morrison talks off the cuff and isn't very good at it. Panics. It's all about his image. I'm not going to blame anyone for wanting to be a long-serving prime minister. You don't go to that job to say, I'll do this for a couple of years and move on to something else. But there comes a point where you have to realise that the role is bigger than your own ambitions. And you either do the role properly and risk not being liked and risk not being able to spin something positive out of it. Or you step down and you let someone else who is prepared to And to be honest, and I'm happy to be pointed out that I'm wrong here, I can't see anyone on that side of government who'd be able to do that anyway. 
he's likely to be rolled in the next two months. I'm not saying he will be, but there's a high probability of it. But whoever replaces him, I don't think will be much better. Well, the other factor is that if you are the Prime Minister, you have to provide information that is correct as well. Now, we can say, well, part of the political process is to spin, dodge the questions, dodge the right answers and provide answers to something completely different. But when it comes to health advice, well, you've got to be 100% correct. And there has been quite a lot of vaccination confusion. So just looking at the history of AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca, when it first became available, it was available to anyone that wanted it. And then it became available for the over 50s only, and then for the over 60s only, and then for over 40s. Now, I'm already confused just going through those numbers. But then Scott Morrison made the unilateral decision just a couple of days ago that AstraZeneca is now available to anyone that that wants it. And he was also going to provide indemnity for doctors. Now, we've got to read the fine print in these situations. Now, doctors do have indemnity for pretty much anything, but they were not prepared to administer the AstraZeneca for under 40s because they say that there's quite a few issues with that. The Australian Medical Association, that's the most powerful union in Australia. Now, they're against the AstraZeneca as well for under 40s, as are all of the state chief medical officers, and it seems like most people in the medical community. But there's there's a couple of standouts here. Scott Morrison and the chief medical officers of, from the federal government, they seem to think that it's all okay. This is the type of thing you don't play this type of politics with. One wonders, too, how much the fact that several Liberal members bought shares in uh, CSL, the company that developed AstraZeneca, before it was announced that it would be the preferred vaccine in Australia, uh, but after it was decided in Cabinet. Uh, One wonders how much Scott Morrison is protecting their, their, their share portfolios as well and the pressure he's getting from those investors, if you like. It's not helping the government's vaccination rollout. Since Joe Biden got into office, I think uh, American vaccination is at 60%. Uh, and that's, you know, four months down the track. In Australia, we're at 5%. One in 20 has it. Uh, and it's just not good enough. It's really not. And we've referred to this in previous episodes where. We suspect that all of Morrison's actions seem to be based on someone who doesn't either believe in vaccination or he doesn't believe in the virus. Now, you know, that's probably a bit of wishful thinking. I'd I'd hope that he he would, but all of his actions seem to be based around someone that doesn't want this issue to go away. And we did refer to the July 2020 discussions with Pfizer that didn't actually happen. Now, we have to look at what other countries did during that time. So the US government in July 2020, that's at the same time that Scott Morrison rejected the Pfizer deal to supply 40 million vaccines to Australia. Now this is under Donald Trump. They actually signed a 1.9 billion deal with Pfizer for 100 million doses. They actually paid the money. They signed the contract and paid the money. So other countries did this as well. Israel did this as well. Uh, the UK did. There's several other European Union countries that also did the same thing. They paid money. But Morrison just signed memorandums of understanding, or, or so we're told, and these are not worth much until the money is actually exchanged. And now we can sort of say, well, okay, well, this didn't happen or did happen. We, we don't know exactly what the case was, but other countries were 
signing contracts and paying the money. Morrison didn't. Like the big question is, why did this happen or why did this not happen? And I don't think we'll ever know the full reason. We know that parsimony was part of it, that, oh, we can do this, we can go this way for cheaper. And as we discussed in the last podcast, I think, uh, for one, was it one week of lockdown, they could have paid for enough virus for everyone and probably even a little bit left over to send to Papua New Guinea or East Timor or places that with a, who maybe needed a bit more help w- with it. And that's where you start to admire leaders. You don't admire them for taking the, the cheap choice, for getting it wrong and then watching them trying to shift blame. This short-term thinking will probably have affect them. If we look around Australia, the premiers that have seemed to have handled the virus well won their election. McGowan, Gutwine, he was seen to manage the economy, the virus well, and and he won. It, it was that simple. I can't see that happening with uh, Scott Morrison in the next federal election. He's got nine months to turn it round and anything's possible, but the only way he can turn it round is by vastly better virus management. Uh, I think Gladys Berejiklian has probably turned now too. She had been seen to handle it well, even though we didn't think she had, but the public perception. I don't know that that's still the public perception. But again, things can turn around. Well, playing politics with this entire issue really isn't going to turn things around for Scott Morrison, and it's just continuing as as we speak. The Queensland government did make a request to the federal government to supply more Pfizer vaccines because they're close to running out, but the federal government has refused, whereas for the New South Wales government, they've provided as much as they need, and that seems very peculiar when you consider that in Queensland, federally, there's so many seats that the Liberal National Party can lose up there. And if they lose four or five seats up in Queensland, well, that's the election gone for them as well. They'll lose government. And I've also noticed that the state premiers are starting to bite back and letting everyone know, well, certainly about the decision to make AstraZeneca vaccine available for everyone. They've let everyone know that this was Scott Morrison's decision alone. It was not theirs. And I think a lot of the premiers, especially Anastasia Palaszczuk up in Queensland, I think they've had enough of being diplomatic with Scott Morrison, attacking Scott Morrison. They've been attacking the federal government. And in turn, the mainstream media has started to attack Anastasia Palaszczuk. And they got very, very upset when she said that they were being rude and shut them up. Please, everyone, let's have some... Let's start yesterday... Well, you had your health minister get up and say, we've tried to get all these Pfizer vaccines. I'm sorry, I don't know your name. You haven't been... Bianca Stone. Oh, hi, Bianca. Yep. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to answer people being rude. So anyone else have a question? You are being very rude. And here's an example of how times have changed. This is an excerpt from 1983. It's, it's an exchange between the ABC journalist Richard Carlton and Bob Hawke on the day that he replaced Bill Hayden as the leader of the Labor Party. Mr Hawke, could I ask you whether you uh, feel a little embarrassed tonight at the blood that's on your hands? You're not improving, are you? I thought you'd make a better start to the year than that. It's a ridiculous question. You know it's ridiculous. I have no blood on my hands. I was not involved in the uh, discussions that Bill Hayden's fellow leaders had with him. I hope the standard of your questioning improves. 
Mr. Hawke, then how do you expect the electorate to believe that uh, you were not party to the plotting that's been going on for the past if fortnight? It, if, it, if it's a question, Mr. Carlton, of the electorate having to believe between your stupidity in such a question as that and my integrity, I have no doubt where their, where their belief will fall. I uh, have been in the public eye probably now for longer than just about any other figure. My integrity is recognised and I'm telling you, and you can believe it or not in terms of whether you want to appear half smart as you look so bad at. Well, let me go to a hard nitty-gritty question about it then. I mean, there was nothing in the paper this morning about the meeting this, this morning, at nine o'clock I think it was, between Mr Bowen and uh, Senator Button, and where I they had... told Bill Hayden that, you know, his days were finished. Well, now, could you meet, can you expect people to believe that you didn't know that that meeting was I going to take place? I can expect people to believe that you are a damned impertinence, uh, Mr Carlton. I can expect them to believe that when I say something, that I tell the truth. If you, for your perverted reasons, wish to uh, try and suggest that something is the case when I say it is not... Now, Mr Carlton, you can sit there with your silly, quizzical face. You've got a reputation right around this country. Yeah, it's looking better still. You've got a reputation for your impertinence, your refusal to accept people at their face value, to try and ridicule the integrity of people. Now, I don't mind my integrity being on the line against yours. Mr Hawke, thank you very much. Over the years, so that was 38 years ago, that exchange between Bob Hawke and Richard Carlton, but the media just has become more arrogant, more confident. I think it's just forgetting who holds all of the power in this particular situation. And my opinion is that political leaders have been too respectful to journalists, and especially Daniel Andrews in Victoria, and maybe it's time for them to give them a serve and put them in their place. Paul Keating used to treat some journalists with utter contempt. Tell them what a stupid question, you know, what are you being paid for? How do you hold down a job asking? And then answer the question anyway. And the press back at the time loved him for it. Bob Hawke could be sharp. Bob was a little bit more friendly, but Carlton was a serious journalist. And Bob expected a lot better from him, I think, which is why he jumps in on him. John Howard was more diplomatic, but didn't really accept foolish questions. I'm tempted to say that it was Kevin Rudd who wanted to bring a level of civility into debate. And everybody saw that that worked with his immensely high, and, and they've been scared to move away from that. But there's no point in not standing up to people who are never going to stand up for you anyway. And you never know, it may go back to that Keating idea where um, they loved you for being smacked around anyway. Journalists need to call power to account. They need to... Of course. They need to ask the serious questions of political leaders and it seems like so far they've reserved their hostility towards Labor Party leaders. So they've been Mm. hostile towards Anastasia Palaszczuk in Queensland. They've been hostile towards Daniel Andrews in Victoria especially. Mm. But it seems like they should be reserving their hostility for the federal government. Everything is wrong with the vaccination program. It's been too slow. The program has moved on to the next phase before the previous one has been completed. There was too much emphasis initially on getting GPs to implement the vaccines rather than creating vaccination centres and hubs. The public messaging has been confused and very inconsistent. And to me, it seems to be more about getting photo opportunities for Scott Morrison and the federal government. Targets have completely gone, although there's a national cabinet meeting this morning and they may reintroduce some of those targets. There's the shortage of 
doses. The government is actually reluctant to admit this as well. This has been a total disaster and you can't help thinking that there's going to be more disasters to come along. People have shown the difference between a Daniel Andrews press conference and a Gladys Berejiklian. Andrews allows any properly credentialed journalist along. Seriously, he has been asked some of the stupidest questions. A couple of News Corp and Sky journalists, and some News Corp people have been really good too. I I don't want to taint all of them with the same brush, but there's been a couple, Peter Credlin, uh, Sophie Ellsworth, spring to mind, who just asked stupid time-wasting questions, and he stood there and answered them all patiently. Gladys Berejiklian, you get invited, and she answers the question she wants to answer, and then she walks off. Sometimes she comes back. Um, She hands off questions that shouldn't be handed off to Kerry Chant or the police commissioner. It's a big difference. And you'd think that journalists would appreciate the difference and call out the difference, but they don't. And yes, Dan Andrews should be asked hard questions, and Palaszczuk should be asked hard questions. And if they can't defend them, then yes, they should be in trouble. But we're getting these two different standards. Well, the hard questions do need to keep being asked. And the the big question for me is that why have there been so many problems with the vaccination rollout? Why have there been so many? Well, it's not so much that there are problems within the quarantining process. It's just that the federal government has been very reluctant to resolve the issue. And, and of course, we have to take into account that this is a once in a hundred year pandemic. And these are very, very unusual circumstances, but it's also 18 months into this crisis. And and you would think and you would expect that the federal government would do as much as possible to resolve these issues. And for me, the big question is, why is this happening? Now, some commentary has been suggesting that Morrison wants the pandemic to continue or the effects of the pandemic to continue so that He can be like the wartime leader or a leader during a time of crisis. And the expectation is that during these sorts of times, the people generally flock to the government and offer them political support, as much political support as they need. And that possibly explains some of his behaviour, either that or he's just plain incompetent. And as we've explained before, the coronavirus isn't some kind of magical elixir that mysteriously makes a bad government good. All of the governments that have been returned recently in Australia, that's Queensland in October last year and Western Australia earlier on this year, they've been returned with thumping majorities, but they've been very competent governments and their opposition has been quite weak. So the usual rules of politics apply. Good governments are usually re-elected and this idea of closing borders or manufacturing a continuing crisis as a political benefit for Morrison is quite foolish. You only have to look at what happened in the US presidential election to see the results. Donald Trump totally mismanaged the coronavirus in the US and that resulted in over 600,000 deaths and he was thrown out of office in their election last year. And, you know, David, we do like to look back at history at particular political events and even successful leaders can be thrown out of office during a time of crisis. Winston Churchill He was seen as a successful wartime leader and he called an election in July 1945, just two months after the war in Europe had ended. And he was hoping to win the election on the back of the war effort, but the Conservatives were absolutely massacred in that election. One one of the worst uh, results for a Conservative government ever. Yeah, that's right. So this idea of 
being the leader during a time of crisis as an automatic success card, well, that doesn't really apply. It still gets down to competence. And as the opposition keeps saying that for 2021, the government had two jobs, quarantine and vaccination, and they've seriously mismanaged both of those areas. Stanley Bruce, the Prime Minister, said something along the lines of Winston was put on this earth to win that war, and that's it. And the British people knew that, so threw him out of office. He came back in 51, but it was only for one term. Scott Morrison's people must be starting to really panic because nothing's working, it seems. He's not coming across as a wartime leader because they haven't been able to frame it as a war because they haven't taken it seriously enough. He's not coming across as a good virus management uh, leader because, well, if you've just tuned in, rewind to the front of this uh, podcast (laughs) and you'll see what we mean. They're now in panic mode, I think, and I don't know that he'll turn it around. And the virus was one at a state level. It wasn't one at a federal level. And I think people understand that. And I think, too, even nominally liberal voters understand this. I wonder if there's a massive restructure coming to the Liberal Party, which is 20 years overdue anyway, just historically speaking. But I wonder if we're really reliving 1942 with the slow, painful death of the United Australia Party and its resurrection in 1944 as the Liberal Party. I wonder if we're moving to something else. It won't be the New Liberals because there's already a minor party called that. But I wonder if they'll call it the, if they go the wrong way, they'll call it the Australian Freedom Party or something stupid like that. It, it's funny how this virus has exposed all the weaknesses in government, in politics, in society, in culture, in the economy. It's exposed all of them. Whether there'll be the will to do anything about it, it's another thing. So the National Cabinet has just concluded its meeting and Scott Morrison has emerged with what seems to be more announcements rather than solid plans and more mixed messages. And and I'm sort of reading this from the media release. So currently we're in phase one. That must be the bad phase. This phase is reliant on vaccination rates, apparently sending a clear message to Australians that eased restrictions and a post-COVID world are directly linked to their choice to get vaccinated now i do understand english even though it wasn't my first language but i really don't know what that means there's no time frame or what the vaccination threshold is going to be within this particular phase phase two is case numbers to become less of a focus and that's to focus from the suppression process to minimizing serious illness hospitalisation and fatality. So the good news is that the government doesn't actually want to kill us all. But phase two does include easing restrictions on lockdowns on people who are vaccinated, introducing lockdowns only to prevent hospitalisation and deaths, implementing a vaccine booster program, which is going to be quite interesting because Australia hasn't even got enough vaccines for the first part of the vaccination program. Phase three is no more lockdowns, and I guess that's self-explanatory. Phase four is almost back to normal with some of the pandemic remaining. Now, for all of these phases, there are no targets. There are no real goals for how to move from one phase to the next. 
there's no indication of how we know that we've moved from one phase to the next one, whether that's by a government decree or some kind of tablet handed down from the heavens. But this just seems to be business as usual for Scott Morrison. It's more announcement rather than substance. It seems to be making it seem like something is happening without it actually happening. And to me, it's becoming increasingly evident that all of these phases, whenever they do happen, they are likely to be implemented under a different prime minister. Morrison has had a go to have a go, but it's probably time for him to actually go too. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.